You're listening to Women in Revolt, a six-part mini-series about art, activism and the women's movement in the UK in the 1970s and 80s. I'm Lindsay Young. I'm a curator, and since 2017, I've been researching the art and artists that feature in Women in Revolt, an exhibition on between November 2023 and August 2025, starting at Tate Britain in London, and then at National Galleries of Scotland Modern in Edinburgh, and lastly at the Whitworth in Manchester. Throughout my research for the show, I've been meeting artists, makers and activists and hearing about their experiences living through a time of extreme social, economic and political change, exploring how their art and ideas forged a path and learning about the great debt women of my generation owe to them. In this first episode of our podcast, we'll hear from women who were making work in the early 1970s. This was at the start of the women's liberation movement in Britain, when a generation were waking up to their oppression and mobilising to demand change. So what was it like making feminist work during that early period? Susie wrote me a little piece that I'd just like to read to you, because I think it really covers a lot of it. This is artist Sue Richardson reading a piece by artist and friend Susie Varty. She said it was really exciting to meet women who were questioning their roles and status quo, so determined to be part of the cultural life and speak our truths. Um, It was a brave new world. We were ferocious and magnificent. Great to have access to exhibiting and print to express all of this. Well, it was a very, very energetic, very passionate time, I think. It was the most thrilling time. And it was 24-7, basically. It was every day. It was part of our lives. You know, we used to take screens home to frame them up or to do the blueprint so we could print it the next day, take it back. We'd get ideas at the dinner table. But the way we lived was really important to us as well. So it was, it was everything, really. It was 24-7, so it wasn't a kind of something that you might just do on kind of one evening. But we thought the revolution was round the corner and we kind of lived accordingly. That was Prue Stevenson, Susie Mackey and Anne Robinson, members of the Sea Red Women's Workshop, a poster collective. We'll hear more from them later. Our story starts in the late 1960s. At that time, jobs were advertised by gender, with men's jobs generally far better paid than women's, and that was perfectly legal. This was before the UK's 1970 Equal Pay Act and the 1975 Sex Discrimination and 1976 Race Relations Act. Women couldn't borrow money from the bank or take out a mortgage without a man's permission. Welfare benefits were paid to husbands and there were no domestic violence shelters. The first would not open until 1973. This then was the context for the women's liberation movement to take root. I'm Margaret Harrison. I'm an artist and I've lived rather a long time. So I have a history and that's what's so strange about it. Thinking that people think of you as history. Margaret was born in Yorkshire in 1940 and went to the Royal Academy Schools in London in the early 1960s. She was part of a new generation of women questioning their lot in a very male-dominated world. My generation had gone through university or some kind of training of some sort. So we were the first generation to really sort of get the grasp of all this. Whereas my mother's generation, it was thought if you got your man that would secure you sort of financially. And we thought, well, we don't want to have to rely on a man. You know, whereas my dad, when he came out of the war and my mother had got herself a job teaching junior school, he was outraged. He said, people will talk about that. I can't support you. You've got to stop the job. And he stopped her job. But he made sure that I got education After graduating, Margaret applied for a teaching job at what was then Manchester School of Art. At the time, all of the staff there were men. When I got there, it was a guy called Norman Adams. And it was, that was a big thing. He interviewed a few women. And apparently the the males in the staff were totally against it. We didn't know that. When we went for the interview, we hadn't realised it because we just thought, oh, we're just good. You know, that's why they're interviewing us. And I got the job. But when I got the job, none of these guys spoke to me and I was really unhappy. And I thought, God, there's something wrong here and I'm going to leave. But one of these teachers, he obviously was hitting on me. And I said, what's wrong with you guys? And he said, 
well, you know what it is. And I said, no, I don't know what it is. He said, well, we didn't want a woman in the department. I went, oh, that's it. And I was about to leave and I said, no, I'm staying. Margaret would be the first woman to teach there, but as women like her started to break into male-dominated professions, they found they were not taken seriously. You could tell that you were seen as the sort of dolly in the group. And because if you had any sort of good looks about you, that's what you were there for. And you thought, oh, for God's sake, you know, I'm not just a dolly, I've got a brain here. These kinds of experiences would lead women like Margaret to get involved in the women's liberation movement. Well, you couldn't help it, really. You were part of it wherever you want. And actually, if you lived in Notting Hill Gate, where I lived at the time, it was all around you. I mean, all the movements kind of started there in London. So you couldn't avoid not bumping into someone who was involved in some group or another. Margaret herself founded the London Women's Liberation Art Group. So what was going on at these groups? We just called it discussions, really. You know, we'd say, what's what's happening? What's happening to you? Where are you? Have you got a job? What are the problems? Are you, you know, what, um, so you just aired what the problems were because there hadn't been anything previous to us. How were we going to sort it? And we didn't know how we were going to sort it. We thought, well, if we got a job in one of the central colleges, that would be that would work. But of course, my experience was it didn't work. You know, I was sort of isolated, being the first woman into that school. The first Women's Liberation Movement conference was held in early 1970 at Ruskin College at the University of Oxford. Hundreds of women attended, far more than were expected. It's generally regarded as a breakthrough moment for the women's movement and a very galvanising experience for the women there. I didn't get to the Oxford conference, I can't remember why, but probably because I couldn't afford to go. And also, I think it felt like, oh, that's an academic group and I'm not an academic, which I probably was, but I didn't think I was because art was seen as outside of that. Artists like Margaret, though, would get involved in the protests that followed. In November 1970, the Miss World Grand Finale was to be held at the Royal Albert Hall in London. It was a bathing suit competition, basically, but it was huge. And it's still going on somewhere in the world where women paraded in front of them and it would go one at a time. And I think one would be in an evening dress, next would be a bathing suit and there'd be something else to show off you know, their best body parts, basically. It was very, very big. It was huge. And so that's why we decided this would be a good platform to make some protest. What was it that particularly angered Margaret and her friends? Well, we thought, this is outrageous, really, that all these women are being judged on their bodies. You know, they've got brains, they do other things. You know, they look after people, they do all sorts of things. Why do they have to be sort of brought down to a body walking across a platform as if you had no brain at all and they had to just smile nicely and wear high heels? That was it. They planned a protest aimed not at the women taking part, but at the compere Bob Hope, an American actor and entertainer. He was the person there introducing each candidate, reading out their measurements and attempting to entertain people with his patronising and offensive commentary. Some of the protesters sat in amongst the audience secretly holding flower bombs. Every now and again a rattle would go and they would drop these flower bombs and Bob Hope disappeared in this sort of flowery smoke. <laughs> and he just was not prepared for it. And he kept going with these awful jokes about the cow's udders and the milk marketing board and things. It was just horrendous. Margaret was five months pregnant at the time and her friends thought it was too risky for her to join in the flower bombing. So instead, she protested outside the hall. I was outside with my preformed black plastic chest with fur nipples and a smile on a stick. My friend Alison had light bulbs strapped to her chest And she had this kind of thing in her sleeve, which she pressed now and again, and the light bulbs would go like this. (laughs) They would go ba-doom, ba-doom. The reporters just couldn't see how there was anything wrong with judging women by their bodies and their looks. 
The press were just going absolutely crazy. And they would say things like, well, you're just jealous that you're not, you're not on that platform. We thought, why would we be jealous about people shouting out our measurements? And they said, because you're not, you're ugly. And so one of my, because I was quite good looking at the time, pushed me forward and said, what about her then? He said, oh, well, you know, she's okay, but the rest of you, and then they would push somebody else forward, but what about that? Well, she's all right. You know, it was sort of like a Monty Python sketch. Margaret would have a brush with the press again the following year over a show that would expose the double standards of the time around pornography and the representation of women. It was an exhibition of her work at the Motif Editions Gallery in London. Basically, it was a group of sort of works on paper, mostly, and it was to do with, I guess it's to do with sexuality. There were images of women in corsets, stockings and stilettos. One showed a woman lying in a sandwich. Another was eating a lemon. There was this thing called, she looks good enough to eat. You know, they equated women with the food, tasty, fruity, fresh and cheap, that sort of thing. And so I thought, well, if I just sort of make fun of that, then they will know what I'm talking about. There were also images of men, dressed much the same as the women. I thought I was making fun of the pin-up thing by actually putting males in corsets and things and giving them breasts or maybe a bunny penis. The bunny penis was in an image she made of Hugh Hefner. He was the founder of Playboy, famous for the bunny girls who would perform at Playboy clubs in corsets, stockings and heels with bunny ears. Margaret's picture showed him dressed as a bunny girl with bunny ears and, as she says, a bunny penis. So what was Margaret's thinking behind making these images? I think I was being ironic. I thought they will know that this is ironic if I kind of dress people up in this stuff. They'll kind of get the message. But that's not what happened. Margaret's feminist perspective was lost on the press and the police. We had an opening, which was actually surprisingly full. I didn't realise it was going to be full. And when I went in the next day, there was nothing on the walls. And I said to the woman who was managing the gallery, she'd been actually scared by the police saying, we're going to put you in prison or something. They'd really scared her in some way. And she said, I, I felt I had to take it down. The issue wasn't to do with pornographic representation of women. They were worried about the police prosecuting them because of the way that I'd depicted the, the males. You know, because I did Captain America with, with breasts and, and well, I think I showed his genitals as well, his genitals. <laughs> and he was in high heels and stockings. They did not like that at all. They thought it was insulting to the men. So isn't it curious that that would be insulting to a man, but not a woman? A group from Playboy had been at the opening the night before. When Margaret went through the pictures that had been taken down, she noticed that the one of Hugh Hefner as a bunny boy was missing. It was never returned. The show put Margaret in the eye of a media storm. It really was a horrible experience because the press got hold of it and they were banging on my door. I think one of them broke a window, actually, trying to get in and... You know, I felt horrible about the whole thing. I felt sick because they were so fierce. They wanted to get at me and they're trying to take photographs of me because we had miniskirts then. You know, there they were on the ground with their, their lenses. And I thought, oh, God, this is just really horrendous. It's about everything I've been fighting against, but I don't want to experience it myself, you know. In the following year, Margaret got involved in the Women's Workshop of the Artists' Union that was being set up to campaign for artists' rights as workers. Margaret was elected to the Secretariat. Another women artist, Mary Kelly, was elected chair. It soon became clear that as women, they would both be viewed as secretaries, whose role was to support the men. There was one meeting where uh, myself and Mary went to, and there were these three guys. I think one was Gustav Metzger. Sweet guy, but, you know, had wrong ideas. Anyway, <laughs> he said, um, we think, there were three of the boys, we think that you should write it up because you don't deliver to the meetings very well. 
and we should then deliver the uh, the information that you've written up. At that point, I thought Mary was going to kill them. And I said, no, we're not doing that. We're going to do the presentation about how bad it is. And that was when we realised, no, we've got to learn how to do this. We've got to learn how to speak in public. Because, you know, we've been good girls. We had sort of kept ourselves quiet. But that's when we realised we actually had to sort of be, you know, visible. And we also had to talk. Margaret got involved in a project with Mary Kelly and Kay Hunt, another artist union member, about women's working conditions. Kay Hunt, whose family had worked in the metal box industry, she wanted to do something about that. And somehow she tricked them into us going into the factory. And these owners thought that we were going to do nice things about, you know, the, the boxes. But what we did was about the working condition of the comparison to women to men. And they turned up at the opening and there was a deafening silence. (laughs) The piece was called Women and Work, a document on the division of labour in industry, 1973 to 1975. It included photographs and films of women working in the factory, along with texts telling their stories, photocopy charts and documents, punch cards and rates of pay. The installation exposed how the metal box company were treating women workers unfairly. Well, there was a huge difference in the pay. That was the thing. What the owners did was that they, as soon as the equal pay came in, they then put the women's jobs in a lower grade and the men's at a higher, because it was by grade. This was the period after the Equal Pay Act had been passed in 1970, but before its provisions came into force at the end of 1975. What Metalbox were doing by downgrading women's work roles was one strategy to avoid paying them equally to men for work of equal value. But there were other strategies too. When I was working on this stuff, I could see that the jobs were starting to disappear from the factory. They were going into people's homes. And I was in contact with a woman called Helen Eady, who was a leader of the home workers. And she said, all this is coming into people's houses and I said, oh, that's interesting. So I said, would you mind if I came with you when you interviewed them? She said, no, that would be great. So I went with her and, honest to God, these, these women were working like crazy on doing, like, filling boxes of stuff or whatever. And I paid literally pence per hour, you know, like 10 pennies an hour. And um, halfway through this, we were interviewing this, this lady and she said... Uh, they were actually sort of composing tax forms. And she said, this is government work. And we're supposed to have equal pay. And it so happened her father-in-law was an MP, and I can't remember his name. Anyway, (laughs) she fed it to him, and he introduced it in Parliament. And nobody knew this was going on because it had been so outsourced by the time it got to the homeworkers. You know, they've been paying a fortune to these people to, to get these compiled. And the, the home workers got their ready to pay. Margaret would use the research as a basis for a work called Homeworkers. Like Women in Work, Homeworkers makes visible the labour of women. In this instance, those involved in this kind of piecework. We wanted to bring the issues into the art gallery because it was a, a thing at the time of people saying out of the gallery into the streets, which is fine, but we said, no, we want to bring the streets into the gallery. We don't want these two areas to be totally separate. We want this stuff discussed in these places because it's part of our culture anyway. Other women had different strategies for bringing the issues to the people outside the gallery. We were the visual voice of the women's liberation movement, I would say. (laughs) Possibly. That was Prue Stevenson, with Susie Mackey in the background. They were both founders of Sea Red Women's Workshop, a poster collective. From 1974 through to 1990, Sea Red produced posters on all the big issues that were being addressed by activists. They're witty, direct, powerful, and they were everywhere. So how did it all start? 
a statement was put out, an advert, in one of the uh, women's liberation magazines, we don't know which one, actually, asking for women who were involved in visual work, cartoonists, graphics, artists, photographers, to meet, to look at uh, producing images which would combat the very negative images that were around of women at that time. And so a number of us met. There was Joe Spence. Uh, there's other women from the uh, Hackney Flashers. There was Christine Roche, who is a cartoonist, and various other women too. And we all met, and then we, I think we decided we were going to call it the Women's Image, was it? And after about two or three meetings, we realised that we, we wouldn't all work together, that we'd split off. And so Hackney Flashers were formed, and we as Sea Red was formed, and that's the name that we took. The Hackney Flashers were a group of socialist feminist photographers who worked together between 1974 and 1980 in East London to make work and ultimately exhibitions that focused on women's labour in the workplace and in the home. But back to Sea Red. We'd all been to art school. There were three of us, Julia Franco, Susie Mackey and myself. We were all involved in community activism and everything as well, and had also been involved in women's liberation before that too. So it was it was a very opportune for us to be able to use our skills as artists and visual image makers to put towards something which we felt very passionate about. And silkscreen making posters seemed to be the most immediate thing that we could do, in fact. Susie Mackey was living in a collective household with Julia Franco at the time. We saw the advert and we thought, great, because we had just come to live there and were joining local consciousness-raising groups. But we'd both been at art school and wanted to use, as you say, what we could do Mm. to further the cause of the women's movement. I think we always said that it was like we wanted to do propaganda for the women's movement Mm. or women's liberation, as as it was more called then. Yes. It was immensely energetic time. Oh, it's actually. so exciting. There's a huge amount of energy around. We all lived in collective households, really. And so politics and activism was actually very much part of our everyday lives. And I think that comes across in the posters, the amount of energy, I think, mm. very much so. So we were raring to go. And I think it was fantastic, just a real opportunity for us to be able to use the skills that we had in such a a great way really Mm -hmm. I think Mm. and um, I think also at the same time as being in consciousness raising groups as well for us it was very much about using what we could do but also about recognising quite early on that the personal is political some of the things you could call personal Mm. posters some of them could be political posters but they they were actually both How did they get going? We squatted a shop in Camden Town bottom of Camden Road there were lots of empty premises in those days. Mm. <laughs> and we set up our silk screen, washing line, clothes pegs, a screen and a squeegee and, and inks. We already had a couple of posters from uh, before, which we were able to incorporate into the Sea Red catalogue. Yeah. And so we put those posters in the window and we printed some more and put those in the window. And within 48 hours, we got a brick through it. So, um, well, at least it was... It got it, a reaction. It got a reaction. One of the posters in the window was called Protest. It's basically a woman, head and shoulders. Her face is green, which, which means that it couldn't be a woman of any colour, really. She's got bright red hair. Her mouth is open and she's looking straight out of the poster, and she's literally shouting, but visually telling everyone, you know, these are the things that women have to put up with, basically. What kind of things? The whole thing of Miss World, women being judged by their bodies, the way they look. There's the thing of marriage, there's sexual exploitation, there's domestic violence, and there's women doing all the, you know, sort of housework. There's another woman who's doing piecework sewing at, at home and another woman who's constrained by corsets and various bits of under you know sort of uncomfortable underwear they were basically things that make you feel angry yeah and, as a woman. and she is angry and yeah. saying enough is enough you know it's we don't want to be viewed in this way mm. we don't want to be constrained in this way and we're determined to do something about it so yeah. we're protesting we're going to protest it's also mm. interesting because a couple of women have said to me, 
several times have said, it mm. also looks like she's so angry, she's just puking these images out, <laughs> which is yes. completely, it's yes. almost the same yes. as telling it. Mm. But it, it's like that kind of yes. vomiting the sexism. Vomiting the sexism. It's a wonderful metaphor for what was going on at the time, with things like the Miss World protests we heard about from Margaret Harrison. But the poster was also a rallying call to women to challenge the oppression that they were experiencing. It's so relatable, basically. Mm. All the women who've ever talked to us about this poster yeah. have said quite clearly what it is and mm. also how angry it made them feel, which is yes. part of our thing, wasn't it, that we wanted yes, to make yes. the women... Yes, we were angry. To qu- we were mm. angry, but also we wanted mm. other women to be questioning and mm. challenging alongside of us. It wasn't mm. like we were going, like, you really need to look at this because, yes. you know, it was... We, we wanted to share it and we wanted mm. to encourage women to sort of say enough is enough, really. Enough is enough. Yeah. And every day we were regaled by terrible images of oh my God. women on adverts, women on the television. Women cars, <laughs> selling a car. You know, the sun was in its heyday, so you had your nudes on page three. It was just like normal, as in normal life, basically, and this is how it is. But also, I think in a way, in the early 70s, when we started, we wanted to sort of spotlight things, didn't we? We wanted to draw attention mm. to these issues. After the brick through the window incident, they moved to South London and set up a studio in Radnor Terrace in Lambeth. That was, I mean, there was no health and safety in those days. It was a squat. There was no squat electricity, was no heating. Much. I remember Julia going round there and having to rip up the floorboards in order to put some proper flooring down before we even went in. <laughs> but it was, mm. it was almost like the excitement just drove you through, really. Yes, And I yes, remember the thrill and of... And damn it, we were young then. Yeah, we were young. I mean, 23, 24, yes. you know. I remember the thrill of... Or just that feeling of coming up out of the basement. No yes. fan, no nothing, oil-based inks. Mm. Feeling like, oh, God, that's ridiculous. And going out into the comparatively fresh air of South Lambeth Road. I don't know if you know the area, but it's pretty mm. built up and pretty horrible air there. But it was like, ah, fresh air, basically. So I don't know what we did to our lungs, but I do know that I don't have very much um, fingerprints left on the tips of my fingers <laughs> from the, the ink and the... Yes. What do people yes. clean our yes. hands with? Screen wash. Stripper. Yes, yes. clean screen, screen screen wash. Screen wash, yeah. After Radnor Terrace, we went to Walders Road, yes. which again was derelict. Yeah. And on a point of principle, it was important that women did all the work. Yeah. So we got women from manual trades and who was the other one? Um, um, Lambeth Women's Workshop. Lambeth Women's Workshop to come and do the electrics and the plumbing. And we did the, all the decorating and getting it ready. But again, our equipment was extremely basic. Actually. Mm. We got a proper silkscreen table and drying racks, and we were then... We oh, were then no away, more, no we? more hang, no, hanging could, the posters on the, on the well, washing, line. washing line with pegs. So yes. we could do 100 a day yeah. or more. Mm. Um, we were still using stencils and block out in the early days, and then a few years later we were able to do... We had a photographic studio and you can installed. See and you that through the posters, yeah. can't you? So how were members of C-Red funding themselves? I think one of the attractive things about it is that you don't need a lot of equipment to do it, mm. or money, basically. Absolutely. Actually. We didn't have any money. We were all working part-time, yeah. doing about two and a half days, two and a half, three days yeah. a week, sometimes taking stuff home to work. Or we had childcare. We weren't paid uh, at all. We were just making, making, just got by, really, didn't we? We did, and I think but, also mm. being in collective households made it quite a lot cheaper. Women in collective households would share the cooking and the costs of food which they bought in bulk. They were able to get free food from nearby Covent Garden Market, the fruit and veg that was being thrown away. This kind of resourcefulness and the whole approach of sharing with other women was also fundamental to the running of Sea Red. There was quite a sort of sorority of alternative printers around Mm. or alternative image makers around who would say oh look there's a sale here or oh, we've got some mm. of these left over do you want these and sometimes our posters might have had some strange colors in <laughs> yes. that we might not have chosen necessarily but that's what we had that's mm. what we'd been given to do one of the great things about life in those days that everybody did share there was no yeah. sort of hierarchy there's no sort of you know 
this is our, our workshop, you know, you can't, yeah. we're not going to tell you how we do it or anything like that. Yeah. We freely shared everything. And I think that was one of the main principles about C-RED mm. was that we had knowledge and skills and, and we were going to share that with any woman Absolutely. who wanted to come Absolutely. Um, and join us. This non-hierarchical openness reflected how many groups in the wider women's liberation movement were functioning. Operating as a collective was a very deliberate rejection of what they had experienced at art school. Having all been at art school, which was completely male-dominated, we didn't have any women tutors, and the production, or screen printing specifically, was seen as part of the graphics programme, and you did posters for other people, basically. There was no concept of doing it for something you believed in. It was fine art process, you numbered your prints, Mm. you signed them if you were thought you were that good Mm. and they were individual works of art and we were very against that we really wanted to be a collective specifically to work as a collective with everybody doing everything in the collective deciding Mm. what Mm. we were going to make who was going to print it who's going to do the rough drawing bring it back have another talk and we spent many hours many hours talking 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 because that was the hard bit for us in a way the deciding the slogans or whatever Often the images came a lot easier. But I think the whole concept of artists with a capital A as an individual, we were very much against that. So we wanted to be a group. We didn't have individual names. We were open to all women who wanted to join within the confines of the space we were working. So it was around five or six at any one time. In all, somewhere between 40 and 45 women came through the collective in the years up to 1990 when it was dissolved. Some of the posters that were produced were for fly posting. If they were in high numbers, like the poster for International Women's Day 1975, they would get other radical printers to do the printing. And we did our own fly posting as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, we would run off, say, a couple of hundred, and we'd go out with our bucket of uh, wallpaper paste and brushes at night in the evening yes. when and it got dark. <laughs> Mostly the posters were available for sale. So who bought them? Schools, colleges... Bookshops. Uh, uh, individuals, bookshops, yes, abroad. Obviously at the Women's Liberation Conference, uh, we used to sell hundreds uh, remember the going conferences. up. Remember going up to Newcastle in the coach? Yes, yes. Everyone's singing the yes. Women's Army. Is <laughs> you know, we had our song sheet. You know, it was fun. But, and it, it, also it, we could carry was, the frames. Yes, yes. Take I mean, some stuff to stretch over it. Yes. I mean, those, those conferences were crucial. Actually. Mm. They were really important because also representatives from women's groups from all over the country came to those mm. conferences. And it was at those conferences that the main sort of demands were, were discussed and put forward uh, you know, for enactment for the government. And they were, they were really, I mean, there could be several hundred. Oh, God, a, yes. A thousand, Absolutely, yeah. Uh, who would attend big very often very volatile and uh, very very strong uh, discussions and factions and they were very very lively dynamic times Mm. and um, I said we used to sell a lot of posters there. As Prue just mentioned these annual women's liberation conferences were where the demands for the movement were decided. By 1978 there were seven demands equal pay, equal education and job opportunities, free contraception and abortion on demand, free 24-hour childcare, legal and financial independence for all women, an end to discrimination against lesbians, and freedom from intimidation by the threat or use of violence or sexual coercion. C-RED produced new posters as each demand was added. Didn't we do one that just had five to start with? Yes, we did. We and did this do is one six, that just had five, that's, that's true. Yes, we did. So we did. Yes. So it... Yeah. You know, even before we'd finished yes. printing that yes. one, there was something yeah. else to add. So mm. ended up with the full seven. If you do a quick internet search, you'll soon turn up a wide range of C-Red posters, which you'll also find circulating on social media. But back in the 70s and 80s, the only way to see them was to encounter them in real life. So where were people displaying the posters? Here's Anne Robinson, who joined C-Red in 1981. So around about probably about 78 or so, I'd got involved in student politics, feminist mm. politics, came out as uh, Dyke, was involved in the local women's centre. So all those kind of... If you were then a little bit pushed to the margins or pushed to the outside because of things like that, then you, you know you're, you're encountering a different kind of culture through women's centres and so on. So I first saw them in women's centres, but also sort of leftist bookshops like First of May Bookshop in Edinburgh. Mm. 
as well. We obviously massively pre-internet, but notice boards were so important to kind of any kind of alternative culture or mm. exchange as well. In sometimes things like whole food shops or community centres yeah. and and that kind of thing as well. The images would inspire her to leave Scotland, where she had been studying at Glasgow School of Art, and travel to London to join the collective. For Anne, there was something excitingly new about the way Sea Red were putting images into the world. It was like taking up a new kind of space or making a new kind of mm-hmm. space for new kinds of visual images and part of, I mean, I suppose what's nowadays called DIY culture, really, and I'm kind of interested looking back in the relationship between... It wasn't called that then, but I guess community art, really, and then art and those divisions being very much more blurred Mm. now. You know, we wouldn't have been seen as art at all. We'd have been seen as kind of almost like protest propaganda or something. It was making a new space or a new kind of art, a new space to make new voices. And the whole thing about that, that putting posters out in the world and into people's homes or onto hoardings as fly posting and so on would be a new new kind of visual culture in a way. Elsewhere, women were experimenting with completely different models for producing and sharing group artwork. I'm Sue Richardson. I'm an artist, a mother, a single parent and a feminist. Sue was one of the founders of the Postal Art Group. She got involved in 1975, but her story starts the year before. In 1974, I was living in Birmingham, although I'm from South Shields in the North East. My son was a few months old and I met Monica Ross at the baby clinic where her daughter was a few months old. Monica Ross was an artist who would also become part of the Postal Art Group. We got talking and realised that we both studied art. She'd studied art history at Reading and I'd studied graphic design at Leeds, and that we had lots in common. And also that we were both here because of our husbands. Our husbands were either working here or studying here or lived here. So what was Sue doing in Birmingham? Well, I'd been teaching art in a secondary school, which is why I moved to Birmingham, to be with my husband, but also for that job. And it was before maternity leave, so if you got pregnant and had a baby, you had to leave. And you lost your status too. So even if they employed you back into a school, you went back to the basic grade. So I wasn't employed at the time. This was a year before the Sex Discrimination Act came in. Monica sort of got me enthused about the fact that since we both left college, we hadn't really been doing any artwork, you know. And the fact that we were seen as mothers and wives, you know, we weren't really people anymore. You know, we'd lost quite a lot of identity. And that we just wanted to start doing work again. So that turned into Birmingham Women's Art Group, which was Philippa Goodall, Susie Barty, who were neighbours of Monica's on her street. And I lived kind of round the corner in a bigger house. So what was the purpose of Birmingham Women's Art Group? Just to get together, talk about, you know, our various sort of strands of artwork and and make things. But generally, obviously, pretty quickly, we realised that, you know, we're unhappy with our lot, really. We're quite angry, you know, about the way that we weren't really seen as artists anymore and that we were unlikely to be working in that field. Um, I mean, certainly while I was at college, it, it was just not thought that you would, you know. I mean, I was told, you know, will you be married? You won't need a job. The group supported each other with childcare, finding or setting up playgroups and lunch groups for their children so that they would each have at least one day a week where they could make art. The four of them happened to be living in the area in Birmingham known as the Red Triangle because of the density of socialist activism taking place there. It was an exciting place to be. You know, it was at a time when a lot of the stuff that was happening in America was starting to happen here as well. And even in Birmingham, you know, where we lived, there were people who were, um, and Kath Hall, Stuart Hall, people who worked at the Centre for Contemporary Cultural Studies at Birmingham Uni, all of their friends. And, you know, there's a big sort of... I suppose it was, I mean, I found it quite scary and quite frightening. You know, they seemed like really sort of articulate people and artists aren't generally, you know. So it it was quite scary. But at the same time, it was great because they set up lots of different groups for women to go and talk to each other in. So it would be like a women in health group, a women artist group, like ours, psychiatry. There was everything under the sun, consciousness raising borrowed from America, you know, trying to sort of become aware of why things were the way they were. So you could go to a group every night if you wanted to and 
you know, and learn something about yourself and make friends, really. So it was, you know, you got from being feeling very oppressed, you got to be feeling quite powerful and to have a, a sort of an outlet for anger, really. The following year, in 1975, Sue went with Monica to the Women's Art History Conference in London. It was there that she met artist Kate Walker. I don't remember anything at all about the Women's Art History Conference, apart from Kate, because it was so radical that she got it. It was an art history conference. Art historians, you know. I mean, I wouldn't understand three quarters of what they were talking about because, you know, I just went to art college. So what does Sue remember happening there? Kate Walker stood up at that conference and said, you know, something like, aren't there any women here who want to work from home to make it on the kitchen table? Forget about galleries and all that stuff, you know, and just communicate with each other about how they feel about things through their art. And she had already started by contacting her friend Sally Gollop on the Isle of Wight and sending something through the post to her. So it was a postal art event, something that she'd heard about from the States. And we decided, yes, certainly we'd join in. And we could invite any of our friends, anybody that didn't have to be artists, to join in with that. And we just sent things through the post, sometimes just a postcard, sometimes a little artwork, sometimes a few bits and pieces, all made at home in between looking after the children and making meals and all this sort of thing. The postal art event ran from 1975 to 1977. Mail or postal art was something that had long been shared between artists, But it became popular in the 60s and 70s, with avant-garde artists looking to disrupt the usual systems of art distribution. Sue got involved by making things using crochet. She'd taken it up a year before, after a friend had taught her. I was absolutely delighted to find that I could do anything. I could crochet anything. And, you know, it's not like knitting, because you don't have all these stitches. You just have one stitch. And you can make a pattern or you can do it on yourself. You know, there are ways. So I worked out that I could crochet figures and anything I wanted to, really, which was a fantastic thing because I certainly couldn't paint anything like that. Crochet also had the advantage of being lightweight and not breakable, which made it suitable to send by post. So what kind of things did she make? My things in the post art event are just what I'd always been making when I was little. But I'd stopped for years. I just sort of started again and I absolutely loved it. You know, I would make two or three things a day. Just making comments about life. One of Sue's pieces was called Bear It In Mind. Bear It In Mind was all about how you spent your entire life thinking about other people. Having to remember things, lists of things, meals you were going to have to make. Um, people you were going to have to look after and and visit, help you were going to have to try and enlist to get through all of the things that there were to be done in the day. Well, it was a kind of dungarees, sort of chopped off dungarees, a bit like an apron, because dungarees are what we wore at the time. There was loads of them around on a hanger. So it was hung up, which was also part of the idea of it being something, you know, that you, you persona, you kind of hang it up at night, maybe not your real one you know, and you become your real person. So this was something that you put on during the day. So it was a hanging sort of truncated dungarees with lots of pockets. And inside the pockets, there would be toy um, utensils, tools, kitchen equipment. Um, In my case, crochet hooks and paintbrushes, pencils. And there would be loads of labels. I think they probably said make, mend, cook, you know. And it was on top of the main pocket. It had, bear it in mind, written in tiny pearl buttons. And it also had another pocket with crocheted sausages coming out of it, which is obviously, you know, the fly. Part of the appeal of the postal art event was the opportunity to connect with other women in a time before mobile phones, email and social media. You only knew people who lived locally, really, or people you might have been at college or university with. You just didn't have the networks that there are now. A lot of the women who took part were caring for small children at home, which could be particularly isolating and lonely. The postal event was brilliant for that, because every time you felt isolated or lonely, you'd just make a piece of artwork and send it to somebody. And I think people made new connections. I mean, I, we because of seeing things in people's little um, exhibitions at home, you know, they would collect the things that have been posted to them and display them. You know, you might make a new contact and send something to somebody you didn't know. And so we made lots of friends. 
Sue and others collected some of the things people had been posting to each other to include in a show at the Institute of Contemporary Arts in London in 1977. So what kind of things did they find women had made? When we came, brought stuff together to exhibit it, what we realised was that there were themes. One of the themes were things about mirrors. There were a lot of work around mirrors and mirror image and how you saw yourself, how the people saw you. There were a lot of things about food and being seen as commodities to be consumed or, you know, to look attractive. So there's a lot of stuff around that. A lot of things on hearts, a lot of stuff about love, you know, and broken hearts and a lot of stuff about trying to get free, freedom, being caged, a lot of butterflies, you know. (laughs) Um, A lot of people wanting to escape from the situation they were in. I mean, free reign, really, but those those are themes. And also there was, there was things around being hidden, you know, things being hidden in drawers, feelings being hidden, you know, your real self being hidden, not being able to express yourself for fear of being not acceptable. The work then was a real reflection of how women felt about their personal situation. And the ICA exhibition was called, very appropriately, Feministo, a portrait of the artist as a housewife, although you may sometimes see it referred to as other things, such as portrait of the artist as a young woman, women's postal art event, or simply Feministo. We had a a sort of, um, it was like a three-dimensional poster. It was a a sort of a, a display case with little bits of information and words in. And it said, I wonder what it's like to be in your kitchen, your mind, your place. And I think that said a lot about the exhibition. That was what you read before you saw it. It wasn't easy finding galleries that were willing to show this kind of work. It was mainly, I think, Monica, Kate and I, and Phil to a certain extent, Phil Goodall, who organised having that show at the ICA. And as far as I remember, the only way that we got it was because the guy who was the director at the time had been the director at Mac in Cannon Hill Park, Millen's Arts Centre, and knew of us because he'd helped us get community arts funding towards the exhibition and then had moved on to that job. And also he was finishing. He was finishing at the ICA, so he had nothing to lose, really. It was his last thing there. Nothing to lose? Why? Was it a risk for him? Yeah, I think it was a big risk, huge risk, because it was just seen as a load of tat, you know. (laughs) This is so telling of attitudes at the time. These small pieces made from things around the home were not what galleries were used to displaying, nor were very personal domestic concerns typical gallery subject matter. The experience of getting involved in the Birmingham Women's Art Group and the Postal Art Group would have a big impact on Sue's personal life and on the other organisers. After about a year, we were all divorced. Well, four of us that were involved, yeah, well, separated. We wouldn't be divorced then, you couldn't. You had to wait eight years or something (laughs) to get divorced. But, you know, we were all separated from our husbands after not very long. It didn't fit with feminism. It's too scary for men. It was really frightening for them. They wanted to be in women's consciousness raising groups. And when he said, well, why don't you start a men's one? A few brave men did, you know, but an awful lot just couldn't cope with the whole idea. I mean, the veneer of, in the 70s, early 70s, of being autonomous, really, as a woman and, and having, you know, it was just a veneer, really, you know. I mean, things like men wouldn't use condoms because they got used to women being on the pill, you know. There was a huge amount of sexual disease, you know, of, of infection around because of that kind of attitude. So attitudes amongst men hadn't, on the whole, really changed at all by then. In those early years, the Women's Liberation Movement conferences, marches and groups were mostly attended by white, middle-class women. Here's feminist historian, writer and activist Stella Dadzi to talk about the position of women of colour. Women's Liberation Movement was in its embryonic stages in those days, so we were certainly watching closely. And like a few other sisters, I attended conferences and went along and engaged with the discussions that were taking place. But there was always a kind of yes but. There was always this sense that they'd come out with these slogans or these campaigns and we were often unseen or forgotten in the narrative. 
So I'll give you an example. Women's like to choose. You know, for us, we'd had centuries of genocide. We were seeing the genocide playing out in places like Zimbabwe and South Africa. And for us, quite often, the issue was the right to choose to have children. So there was that dimension. Or if you took on the Greenham Common campaign... That's the Women's Peace Camp at RAF Greenham Common, a site of protest against the American nuclear missiles that were being kept there. I was one of the women who went along and pinned my little ribbon to the barbed wire fence, but my frustration was the nuclear testing was taking place in the Easter Islands, and the plutonium was being dug out of Namibia, and there was a kind of nimbyism that went alongside some of these campaigns that just did not take on the need to have a kind of anti-imperialist gaze. There was also a sense that feminism had limited relevance to women living with racism and in low-paid, exploitative jobs. Feminism was seen by some women, anyway, as very much a white women's thing. It was seen as middle-class white women who were quite often seen as navel-gazing and who confined their concerns to issues of patriarchy and gender inequality, which of course impacted on our lives, but they weren't the only things that concerned us. For women like Stella, the anti-racist movement had a greater and more immediate appeal. All the issues that were impacting on our community impacted on us, because quite often we were in the front line of it. The miseducation of our children, the police brutality, the SAS laws. These were stop-and-search powers that allowed authorities to arrest and charge on suspicion alone. It was a whole plethora of issues that were primarily issues that were for the anti-racist movement. But because they impacted on our lives, they were issues for us as well. In the course of the 1970s, women of colour would come together locally to tackle issues affecting their communities. For example, the Southall Black Sisters in West London and the Simba Black Women's Group in Manchester. Stella shares more on this in a later episode, where we will learn how women of colour would mobilise at a national level. But in our next episode, we'll hear from women who were making work in the 1970s that challenged the institutions of family and marriage and questioned the belief that a life of domesticity was the key to their happiness and fulfilment. It was like this absolutely exquisite view of family life. It was so beautiful. And by the end of the week, it was devastating. I'm not sharing my paintbrushes. (laughs) Certainly not. (laughs) Underwear was being shared, everything. I said, but not my paintbrushes. (laughs) I <laughs> stopped to that. It was so hard being female with that predatory culture, which was denying your existence. It was really difficult. The Women in Revolt podcast series was made possible by the generous support of Labena Hamid. It was conceived of by me, Lindsay Young, and it was produced by Rosie Oliver of Ticker Tape Productions, who researched, conducted and recorded all of the interviews. It features music from White Mice by the Medettes. Women in Revolt, Art and Activism in the UK, 1970-1990, is on at Tate Britain from the 8th of November 2023 to the 7th of April 2024 at National Galleries of Scotland Modern, Edinburgh, from 25th of May 2024 to the 26th of January 2025, and at the Whitworth University of Manchester from 7th of March to the 24th of August 2025. The exhibition is supported by the Women in Revolt Exhibition Supporters Circle, Tate International Council, Tate Patrons and Tate Members.